94.7 KTWV HD3 Los Angeles. In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv. Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds, and the Stories That Make Us. I'd seen this book a few times and uh, was in a bookstore and looked at it a little bit more closely, sounded and looked interesting. Again, uh, judging a book by its cover and inside cover and things of that sort, but looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you. Next week, Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is... Best Things First by Bjorn Lomberg. Best Things First, the 12 most efficient solutions for the world's poorest and our global SDG promises. Um, SDG is the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations, which I'll, I'll talk a bit about that. He discusses how we've been doing or not doing so well on those. So, you know, speaking on judging books by their covers, this one... I got recommended to me, but he was also on a, a TV show. That's where someone had seen it and told me about it, and it looked interesting. And the book was interesting, and I'll talk about uh, what, what it talks about. Um, looking at efficient solutions to help the world's poorest, very much something that uh, aligns with my at least thinking or wishful thinking or wanting things to see happen in the world. So I was... Uh, curious to read it then as I looked into the author a bit more and so I say this with some caution because I did some preliminary research looking at different things he talks about so Bjorn Lomberg um, has created the Copenhagen consensus think tank um, but one thing I did see a lot of in his even in his Twitter page but also he's written books about uh, climate change, but more about how he thinks we're putting too much emphasis on climate change, the negative effects of climate change, that they are overblown and uh, not the best use of our resources. And so I'm um, seeing that, and I, I can't say I'm an expert on climate change, but from what I did read and seeing people that are scientists in that area, it seemed that they were, uh, they disappointed in some many of the arguments that he made or that might be putting it lightly and so um, there were some reports I read or articles or people's opinions that often what it seems to be coming out of this think tank is uh, promoting that other ideas are more important than climate change and these things are complex yeah, one of the themes of the book is that uh, if we try to do everything we often do nothing. He didn't say it like that, but that's something that 
um, becomes evident when he's talking about how these, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which I'll mention now, were um, created by the UN to go from about 2015 to 2030 to follow up on the Millennium Development Goals that went from 2000 to 2015, which uh, Bjorn Lomberg in this book says were actually quite successful in making lots of positive change that improved the lives of millions, maybe billions of people around the world throughout that period. And so this follow-up, these sustainable development goals, he says, now that we're at around 2023, which is like halftime of that um, period of 2015 to 2030, uh, he's saying we haven't done well at all. And his um, suggestion is that it's because we tried to do too much and it was and it was too vague. So he shares some of the goals, for example, related to education that he says are hard to even decipher or define and then to even recognize, are we making progress towards those goals? So it did affect how I, you know, I read the book and it's interesting how um, your perception of things can change with some information. And it's not that I have uh, really the full story because as I mentioned, I was just looking at some articles, some things about what he said. I don't in any way uh, claim to be a climate change expert. And most of what I've seen is the consensus is on one side that uh, human-made climate change is negatively impacting the environment and and can continue to do so in ways that might be irreparable. And we need to take action and take uh, significant actions Uh, quickly or else we will be down a path that we might not be able to come back from and then of course there are some that say these these types of claims are overstated and that's where it seems like Bjorn Lomberg falls but uh, I I I'm concerned that there's a bias there so that's something that is important to keep in mind that being said um, what he discusses in this book is based on research done by individuals from his Copenhagen Consensus Center, but also in collaboration with other uh, experts in various fields of economics, but also related to um, things like health and maternal and newborn health and chronic diseases and things of that sort. Uh, And so basically he's looking at these sustainable developmental development goals and how he feels that we're not doing well and instead what we should do is focus on some of them and the ones that have the best BCR, which is benefit-cost ratio. I know we often, uh, at least I've often heard it as cost-benefit ratio, but in this way it makes more sense when you're trying to think of a benefit-cost ratio, which is essentially how many dollars do you get back uh, for every dollar spent? So sometimes you'll hear they say that for every dollar spent on education, uh, a country will get $8 back or whatever it is. It might be more than that. But um, trying to understand what's the best ways to invest our money. Um, and so as I was saying about this, we have to focus on certain things. You know, if we try to do everything all at once, we might not be able to do any of them very um, well. And so he's suggesting let's focus on these 12 that seem to have the best BCR, this best um, benefit-cost ratio, so we're getting the most for our dollars. And uh, as he explains, and there's a whole appendix on this of how do we even value a life, um, we 
don't just mean money saved as in actual dollars, but it could be even um, years of life added to people's lives and how many of those we do. So he suggests that there's these 12 that he gets the detail. There's a few chapters of introduction, and then the next 12 chapters, the last 12 chapters of the book, are each on one of these different aspects of the world, things like tuberculosis, malaria, um, education, agricultural research, um, things that we can research and development, things that we can do to help the world and how they will be the most beneficial as far as bang for your buck. uh, Things like for tuberculosis, for example, um, based on their research, we would get $46 for every dollar spent and could save uh, 600,000 lives. Um, So that would be basically one example of what they're looking at. And this is, um, I think it's in the whole total of time or averages per year. So yeah, 600,000 lives per year. So, um, and, and interestingly, as I was saying, they, they give a measure for how much a life costs. Now this might seem crass and he uh, does explain this, that it's not in the way that they want to put value on life as a dollar value. But that realistically, we do that as a society. So, for example, um, if I tell you that, you know, we could put a a barrier between the roads, let's say, from, you know, the opposite sides of the road going in different directions, and uh, that would prevent deaths. Now, if you learned that only one person died on this road last year and would cost $20 million to build that barrier, you might reconsider is it worth building it here or really that's what we see happens is that we build safeguards in certain areas where it's more dangerous but we don't in other areas not because people can't die there uh, or get hurt but because it's less likely that they will and so we do make this type of benefit cost ratio whether we want to accept it or not Um, and that's the thing that's tough even when I'm reading a book like this it's like making suggestions well this will save 600,000 babies a year and it costs this much and the first thought is, well, we should do it no matter how much it costs. But the, the reality is we live in a world where um, there are still going to be limited resources and not only that, limited resources and what people are willing to, to give up and to allocate. So uh, that is a bitter truth that is part of this book as well. And so based on their calculations, this is in the appendix of the book, they say that uh, the value of a statistical life year is set at $4,300. So for every year that essentially someone's life is saved or prolonged, it's worth $4,300. So using that type of mathematics, saving a baby's life is actually worth more than saving an elderly person's life because on average, the baby will have longer to live. And so if we save let's say both of them from some kind of disaster, that child's life is is worth more in this type of calculations that are set forth here. So um, it is in a way, that part of it makes it, well, a lot of it is heartbreaking just as he talks about how many millions and billions of people are suffering around the world. But it, it's sad to hear um, these things. But it's one of these sad realities that myself very much included, we try not to think about or we often don't think about and how we function our day-to-day lives um you know for example i think of what's happening in maui right now it's very sad these wildfires that are 
have already claimed many lives and also displacing and affecting many people. And it's it's horrible, and I hope people will help and aid will go there. Um, but then as I'm saying that, I recognize there's people that are suffering every day. It might not be from some type of a uh, immediate natural disaster like a wildfire or something of that sort, but there's people whose lives are being lost in preventable ways, you know, and this book talks about those types of things, even malaria, for example, that still is killing many people or uh, maternal and newborn health where, um, you know, death rates are still high in some areas, uh, haven't dropped very much compared to other areas of the world. And so people are dying, people are getting ill from things that we can easily prevent, but they aren't uh, capturing headlines and then because of that capturing the resources because they are these more slow moving types of tragedies or these constant tragedies rather than ones that are uh, happening and of course capture our attention because of the images that we see and sometimes we don't see images of these people who are suffering so it's a tough reality that when I read books like this it reminds you of um, how to save a life or I forgot to maybe that's not what it was called uh, by Peter Singer but that was a similar theme of looking at how your money can go the furthest and donations and things that you you make um you know how can you make your dollar go the furthest in helping people's lives similarly we see that there's a lot we can do to help people but we we don't we don't do them as a as individuals and also as a society and so unfortunately i, I read a book like this and then likely i go back to my own life as well in a lot of ways as much as i see what uh, can be done with relatively um, not a lot of money in a global scale of things. So, for example, uh, here it's, um, you know, there, these 12 things that he's suggesting would save 4.2 million lives per year. And so that's pretty um, remarkable. The total cost would be $41 billion per year. And then also it save those lives, but also many of them have other benefits that are financial or economic in their own ways that also are important. So it's the lives saved, but um, there's also more that would come about because of it. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, he goes through things like tuberculosis, malaria, for example, having nets that are lined with insecticide can be really helpful. And 200,000 people are dying, would be saved by doing these types of um, interventions for malaria, for example, or uh, child immunization. This is a, uh, unfortunately, a topic that's become controversial with um, vaccines getting the type of um, exposure they've gotten with the COVID vaccine. But even before that, we were seeing it with um, links being made. They were not correct links between things like vaccines and autism. Um, and unfortunately, was making people go away from vaccines. But when we look at uh, vaccinations and um, what vaccines have done and the millions and millions of lives that have been saved and children's lives that have been saved because of vaccines for for things, for example, like smallpox. Um, it's unfortunate that we see that, I'm, I'm not here to say that anything that's been made is always going to be helpful, but that vaccines as a whole have been seen as this uh, negative thing is really, really sad because millions of lives are saved and I can even see people might be less likely to promote something that would give access to vaccines to people in different countries because of their these biases that they have. So um, he goes through, you know, in each chapter, and it's 
he's writing the book, but it's based on research of these different members of the think tank and other consultants that they work with. Um, and uh, the tuberculosis, the first one here, but maternal and newborn health would give eighty-seven dollars uh, benefit BCR. Childhood immunization, one hundred and one um, dollars of benefit for uh, what would be inputted. So. We, we see that with small amounts of money, big impacts can be made. And so for me, that was informative to see what can be done. And hopefully governments will do more. You know, oftentimes governments want to help, but they don't give their help in the best way or the most efficient way. So that part of the book and this project, I appreciate, as I mentioned, um, seeing that Bjorn Lomberg what he says about climate change and the way we're dealing with it. From my understanding of it, I don't agree with. I can definitely get deep and more into it to understand it better. But that that made me feel a little bit um, uncomfortable at times when I was reading this, wondering if there's a distraction type of a motive as well. So a kind of grain of salt there. Actually, he did talk about reducing salt intake being one of the uh, issues related to nutrition that he suggested. Uh, but that book is Best Things First by Bjorn Lomberg. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Best Things First by Bjorn Lomberg. And as I mentioned, looking at some of his work and some of his uh, messages that he puts out, I did see there was a strong message against uh, climate change, as he calls it, alarmism or being too concerned about it and that it's going to be too costly. The ways that people want to combat it are going to cost people more and there's better ways to use our resources and money. And so it's it's hard to say uh, for me exactly who's um, right on this. Uh, and it was a reminder of me for me that, of course, we look to experts uh, and also because I saw this documentary series on Netflix I think they they presented in a way of like if you want to be or how to be a cult leader so basically it was like going through the playbook of how different individuals who became cult leaders what they did and the different methods they used and oftentimes many of them would use similar methods to build their cults and their followings, their flock, and how they would do different things like make them um, commit in certain ways by, for example, sacrificing more. So the more you have to sacrifice to be part of a group, you are more likely to to feel even more committed to that group just by um, trying to make sense of the world, the sense of, of symmetry between your actions and your, uh, you know, thoughts and your actions. So if I'm doing a lot to be a part of this group, I'm committed to it. It must be a really good group. But what you see in all of these um, cults and, you know, we if you watch these videos or you see documentaries about different cults, a common reaction when you're watching is like, how, how stupid are these people? How could they believe that this man, this woman, more often men, but there have been women cult leaders as well, how could they believe this person has, you know, uh, God himself or knows all the answers or has talked to aliens and has secrets or whatever it is. How could they possibly do that? And we, it's very easy to look at them and think, 
Um, they're so stupid and so naive, and I would never do that. And of course, uh, everything from the outside seems easy when it's not your problem or you're not the one who's done something or done some kind of uh, mistake. But uh, we should be careful not to be so proud of ourselves or to lack that humility that we too could find ourselves in that type of situation if certain circumstances were there. It's not to say that everyone is equally susceptible to be a member of a cult, but you're likely more susceptible than you think. And they don't just come at you quickly with the most intense requests or the most extreme beliefs. You slowly get eased into it and it becomes part of your reality and now you see things in a different way. I've not been a member of a cult, but I remember doing, you know, in certain moments, for example, doing certain courses and feeling, um, doing a course that was similar to Landmark. And when I look back at how I was thinking at certain parts of it, did not totally um, drink the Kool-Aid, which if you might know, comes from the Jamestown massacre. But, um, but I do see that there was ways that I started to distort as my voice distorted, as my voice got distorted there, uh, started to have some distorted ways of seeing things or was buying into it a bit more than now when I look back, I might be like, oh, that's, I don't know how I would see things that way. This is maybe 14, 15 years ago. So uh, I say that just so we recognize that we might be more susceptible than we think and doesn't have to be a cult as in you go join some kind of group and you, uh, you know, live on some commune or do anything like that and do anything extreme. But there's also different forms of cults that get formed now online. For example, following a political leader or a spiritual leader or self-help leader or guru that we might find ourselves getting drawn into them. And one of the key elements that for me, I think is one of the biggest ones. It's really one that is also uh, relevant to religion in general, but it's the sense of wanting, because life is makes us anxious, because life is uncertain, because we are uncertain about things and uncertain about what's going to happen to us and uncertain about our safety, we are looking to someone, something, some entity, some group to give us some sense of security and reassurance that we're at peace if we're with them, that we are right if we're with them, that they know everything there is to know. And so because of that, we can turn ourselves over to them. There's a very uh, comforting feeling to feel that we can turn ourselves over to this person, uh, could be an intellectual even, who has all the answers. And so uh, this always was happening. But with the internet, we see this even more in social media, people who gain a lot of attention for being the person who has all the answers, whether it's more general or specific to fitness or how to think about things, um, relationships, mental health, sales. I've seen some of those very common ones, how to grow your business types of um, gurus. And people are looking for that. It's a very symbiotic relationship because uh, not everyone has this drive, but everyone would like to be praised and to be made to feel special. We all have some drive for that, but some people have more of a narcissistic drive towards that where they want to be elevated and to be seen as a God and to put on that type of a pedestal that 
they know everything, that they are so wise, that people will just turn over to them and follow them. So this symbiosis is people wanting someone to believe in, to feel that they can stop thinking for themselves and stop worrying about things, and someone who wants that type of attention and fame and often what comes with it, financial uh, compensation and success in some way. And so they they easily find each other. We keep seeing this. But I'm seeing it much more in a different way, as I was saying, with the Internet, where it might not be a full-on cult, but people are turning to someone who gives them that comfort that they know everything. And so the bad news is no one knows everything. And the bad news is no one can do the thinking for you. And I, I know in this show I present lots of ideas, my opinions, my thoughts, of course, books. I share the ideas from the books, but also my ideas on the books. And I'm sharing my thinking for you uh, or with you, I should say. But it doesn't mean I, I want to do the thinking for you. So I hope even as you uh, listen to my show, I've actually thought in size people, you know, you get a variety of responses from people. Um, some people will respond with, I didn't know you had a show. But some people <laughs> respond with, um, I like your show, or it's this, or it's that. And sometimes people think a very nice compliment to give someone who does a show like mine is to say, I agree with everything you say. And of course, in an initial way, that's that does feel good. I would say that if someone comes up to me and says, everything you say is good, I agree with everything you say, there's something very comforting about that. That actually feels quite nice. But that doesn't feel so good when I actually look at it more critically because that will tell me one of maybe a few things. One is maybe they're just saying that they don't agree and they're just saying it to be polite or they think that's what I want to hear. Uh, or possibly uh, they really aren't listening that carefully. By that I mean, um, actually we can look at this two-way, listening to what I'm saying, but then listening to what's going on inside themselves as they listen to me, right? So you listen to what I have to say, but then you think, well, what do I think about that? Do I agree with that? partially, not at all, in a way, in a different way, that's actually listening. Um, you know, sometimes we think of listening, which is a very important part, even in some ways half or more than half of communication is listening, as I talk to you for 15 minutes straight. But a big part of communication is listening, but it's not just listening to the words the person is saying, it's simultaneously listening to what's going on within you about what they're saying. So when we are attuned with someone, if we're just having a two-person conversation, we're attuned to them and attuned to ourselves both. And we try to maintain this dance and both people are doing that. They're listening to themselves, listening to the other person, listening not just in the sense of words, but also body language and tone and emotion. And there's that type of back and forth. So if you are really actively listening to me, then I would hope you're also listening to what's going on within you as I speak. Um, not just hearing the words and taking them in or thinking that's even the right way to hear it. And really to keep this in mind when you are are listening to anyone or even reading. Um, in Eric Fromm's book, is it, I think it's to, to Have or To Be, I think that's what it's called. But I remember he was talking about uh, reading as a conversation or really active reading that it shouldn't be considered something passive. Sometimes we think of reading as a passive thing. But if we're really engaged with what we're reading, we're having a type of conversation. Yes, you won't actually hear the author reply to what you're saying, but you are hearing what the author is saying and responding and replying and critically thinking about it from your own 
perspective, not just uh, taking it in, downloading it, so to speak. Sometimes we think of reading as downloading, but it should be much more of an interplay uh, than that. But unfortunately, we often find ourselves looking for that. And I can I can understand that it's comforting. And I definitely do that myself at times and try to catch myself that the person that tries to tell you they know it all really doesn't know so much because the people that really know a lot will tell you that they don't know it all or will tell you there's limits to their understanding or that these are their thoughts or opinions on things. But this is another unfortunate uh, expression of the internet and social media is that people who are more certain are going to get more attention. Someone who says, I know this is the truth about this gets more attention than someone who says, here are my thoughts on this, or I think there's complexities here, but here are some of the findings, or this is some of my opinions on this. That doesn't get as much attention as the person who says, I know this. I know this for sure. Or the other person is so stupid to think what they think. These types of ways of thinking get people much more attention, and these people get seen as the experts. And I think, unfortunately, it's eroding how we see people who are actually wise and intelligent, that we're moving away from people who see things in a balanced way, who have different perspectives or who can see the different perspectives to more polarized ways of seeing things where what we're actually trying to do is move towards someone who just confirms what we already believe and makes us feel better about what we think or believe rather than challenging it. You see a lot of videos where uh, you know, it says so and so obliterates liberal, whatever, or so and so liberates right wing nut job, or something like that. You know, and it's a video of some intellectual, uh, often, and then they're in some kind of like a speech, and the person, you know, you see so many of these where some conservative intellectual or some liberal intellectual is giving a talk somewhere, and then a person who's opposing them comes up and thinks, "Oh, I got the perfect question to." to get them and then they ask their question well what do you think about da 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 and then the intellectual has this perfect response and as the YouTube video uh, subject line says obliterates this other person and and so I've seen many of those myself um, sometimes they use the word obliterate very um, liberally I guess pun intended by saying that uh, you know, this, the person says something that maybe they're more right or presents it in a better way. But what you're seeing is basically like if you were a Lakers fan, I'm a Lakers fan, and then you saw someone who was a fan of another team, maybe even it's like a Lakers player versus a fan of the other team, and then seeing LeBron James dunk on a Celtics fan and saying, see, the Lakers are better than the Celtics. Look what just happened there. Because we're seeing an intellectual of, on one side of a debate, basically, and someone who's more of an amateur on that side, and then seeing the professional beat the amateur and thinking that means his idea is better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that person is a more professional debater than the other person. So why do we watch videos like this? Because it makes us feel good about how we think or really how we feel and makes us feel like we're more right. So we want to see our strong guy beat the weak side of the other team because it makes me feel less likely like I have to doubt myself because we're all questioning, am I actually right about these things? We say we're so certain about things, but really if we go deep down, there's always going to be some level of doubt. And so it feels good to see someone on our side dunking on someone on the other side 
because it makes us feel better about ourselves. But are we actually becoming smarter and wiser and understanding better? No, we're just confirming what we already believe and feeling better about ourselves. But that shows that we're actually afraid that what we know or what we think we know, we might actually not know. So the appeal of someone to do the thinking for us makes a lot of sense. I could totally get that. It takes a lot of effort. It's very uncertain when we have to do it ourselves. It's a lot easier to find a source that we think has the truth and then just listen to whatever they have to say and repeat whatever they say and try to think whatever they think. And then we kind of have it easy. But the hard truth is that we always have to do the thinking for ourselves. We can't just take someone's advice without thinking about it for ourselves. We have to think for ourselves and make our decision. We can't take an idea from someone and internalize it as our idea. We have to think and see if we come to that type of conclusion. This doesn't mean don't listen to experts, especially experts in various fields. Absolutely, we should. And that can help us understand things better. But the recognition that no one person, no one source has all the answers, um, although it might be discomforting when we think we found that source, it really is the reality that we have to accept that this is the world we live in. No one knows everything. No one could do the thinking for you, but you're well equipped to do the thinking for yourself. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. For the last segment, I wanted to talk about why nice is a four-letter word. So um, nice, of course, sounds nice. But when we look at how it's used when we describe people, um, we see that it actually isn't so nice or it's not something that we should aspire towards. I've actually realized when kids say nice, often they mean it in the way that we would want which is kindness, and I'll talk about that, another four-letter word, kind, that we want to replace uh, nice with. Um, but when we use nice as adults, although it sounds pleasant, is actually not something we should want. So what does it mean when someone says you're nice? Usually what they're saying is that you are easy, easy for them. So someone who's nice, also this would go along with being a people pleaser, they are not trying to bother anyone. They don't cause any trouble. Uh, they're easygoing. They do what other people want. And so, of course, especially in the short term, people will like to be around a nice person because they let them get away with whatever they want to get away with. They let them get their way and they let them do whatever they want. So nice means I'm not going to be as real because I'm going to just be easy for you. So where should we go? Well, whatever you want. That seems more nice. Or you say something to them or you do something to them and they respond in a way. Um, they might even be called patient in a way because they don't respond to something, but it's actually more passive than patient. They're just not saying what's on their mind. They're not telling you if they're actually upset. So nice sounds good, but it actually isn't. That's why I'm saying nice is a four-letter word. We should be aware of being called nice or being nice and recognizing that it's actually not something we should aspire towards. What we're looking for is kindness, genuine kindness. So to be kind, another four-letter word, that's something actually quite good. Being kind means I am showing some type of love or positive feeling towards someone or positive action towards them, but it's coming from what I genuinely want to do. So kind comes from within me, 
Nice comes from what I think you want. I want you to feel good. I want you to like me. So I'm going to be nice. And that's actually a big part of it is that we want people to like us. And we want to avoid conflict. Those are two big parts of it. Being liked and avoiding conflict. Now you might have noticed I said earlier in the short term people like to be around someone who is nice because that's true. Or it could be long term but not very deep. So someone you might see regularly but you don't have to get that close to. Someone who's nice makes things very easy. But people tend not to want to get very close with someone who is nice in this way that I'm describing because there's a lack of an authenticity there or a lack of the reality of what comes in a relationship. So as much as we might think, of course, no one wants conflict. Most people are not seeking conflict or no one wants uh, discomfort or wants things to not go their way in the moment. Overall, when we are just being nice or someone is being nice to us, we can get bored with that because we don't feel someone real is there. It actually reminds me of how people, we, we see that there's these, you know, robot boyfriends and girlfriends or different things that are out there. And often we see people actually are, uh, they do like that. And there's something to like about that and that it makes everything very simple. Unfortunately, I think this is something we have a tendency towards in general, but we're seeing even more where uh, younger and younger generations are moving towards the sense that good means no problems or good means easy and no challenges. So a good relationship is someone who just does whatever you want. That's how they can feel about things because we are definitely moving towards this sense of um, take away things that don't feel good, even though it's through challenges that we grow and it's through challenges that our children will grow. There is this movement towards if it makes you uncomfortable, that's bad. And if it doesn't feel good, then that's bad and you shouldn't have to ever deal with that. But this isn't good. So yes, um, if you want to be someone's like a robot boyfriend or girlfriend, then being nice will work. And some people might like that, but you can never have a very deep or close relationship with someone who is being nice. And maybe you've experienced this being on either side of it. Um, if you've been nice to people, you'll likely notice you have a people pleaser mindset, which means that you are more focused on how the other people feel around you rather than yourself. The way I sometimes think of this is that of course, many people have a hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes, and that could be a big problem of having empathy, compassion, and being someone who can see the other side of some situation that you're in. That's not a good thing if you can't put yourself in other people's shoes. But unfortunately, there's also a problem on the other extreme of that spectrum, which is people who can't keep their own shoes on, where they can't stay in their own feeling to see what it feels like in their own shoes. How do I feel about this situation? So someone who is nice will often in the moment have a pleasant interaction with someone and it might not be till much later that they realize they didn't like something that happened. Sometimes they realize it in the moment and might not say it, but often what you find is that people who are nice don't even realize that they didn't like something or unhappy with something or had an opinion that was different from those around them. So people will want to do something. Hey, what should we do? And say, oh yeah, anything. I'm easy going. Let's go there. Yeah, that sounds fun. And then maybe they're there and they're like, I'm kind of bored here. I don't like this. Or I would have preferred if we did this other thing, but it's not so much later that they're even aware that they didn't like what the plan was. So often if you ask a people pleaser or someone who's nice, uh, you know, if they 
with, about them being easygoing, they'll say, yeah, I'm easygoing. And you say, well, do you always have some preference that you don't say? And they often will say no, because they might not realize it, that they even have a preference, which shows how much they're focused on other people that they're not even asking themselves what they're feeling. This actually is relevant to the previous segment where I was talking about listening, where a big part of listening is, of course, hearing the other person, but also listening to what's going on within you. The same is true in our general interactions where if we're being genuine and if we're really connecting with the other person, we have to bring ourselves into the interaction. So be mindful of them and pick up on their feelings and have that empathy, but also have that type of internal empathy, we can really call it that, of what I'm feeling in the interaction or else you can't actually be close to someone. So if we are focused on nice in our relationships, nice is not very close. We can't very get very close if we or the other person is acting in a nice way. So nice, not so good, not so nice. Kind is what we, I would say, replace it with. Because when I say that, someone might hear, yeah, being nice is not good. And they think, well, that justifies being mean. So I just say whatever's on my mind. Um, and that's its own uh, lesson that uh, I've talked about before, but that the truth is not enough. So sometimes people think, well, if something is true, I can say it, even if it's mean. You hear it, someone will say something, whoa, that's really mean. And they say, well, it's true. And so you can go up to someone who has just had some tragic loss and every day for the rest of their life say that tragic loss, it would be true. But would that be the right thing to say or a good thing to say? Absolutely not. And so the reason why I say the truth is not enough, sometimes people say, well, if something is true, you should say it or you can say it. And I'm not saying you can't say something that is true, but that the truth is not enough because infinite things are true at any moment. So right now, even as I'm doing the show, I can say infinite things. You know, I can talk about the table being read in front of me. I can talk about this blue book. I can talk about something that happened in the news today, yesterday, and a million things happened around the world. And I could choose any of those, right? And so as you listen to me, you listen to what I'm saying, but there's, of course, everything else that I'm not saying. And the fact that I chose something to say, and I hope I'm deliberate with that because it's not just, okay, I said something that was true, but why did I choose this true thing to say? So we definitely shouldn't say things that are untrue, but we shouldn't also think that just because something is true, that justifies saying it or makes it okay, or wouldn't make it an unkind thing, or we could say the wrong thing to do to say something that is uh, just because it's true. So uh, that's something that I think unfortunately comes about when we see the negative side of nice is that people think, yeah, then if I mean, that's okay, that's good. And maybe in some ways it's better than being nice. There's something more real about it, but there's still something that I think we can aim towards, which is can we be loving and kind? So here on the surface or from the outside, and especially in a short uh, term experience, Someone who is nice and kind might look the same. Oh, they both brought a gift or they both said something nice or kind. But the person who is kind, again, it's coming from a genuine desire to do that internally, which means that I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. It feels good to me, not just to get some reaction from you. A little side note about that. Sometimes people will say, well, if you got someone, let's say a gift, or if you did something nice and you didn't like their reaction to it, or that made you upset, then that means that you did it for the wrong reason. And there's some truth to that, but not completely. I actually think they are two related but separate things. How I feel about what I did, and then how I feel about your reaction to it. 
they are definitely related, but they're not one and the same. So I might bring a gift for a friend and I hand it to them and they throw it in the trash. I might feel like, you know what, it was my friend's birthday, I brought a gift, I feel good about that. I don't like the reaction that they grabbed my gift and throw it in the trash. It would be unfair to say, because I didn't like that they threw it in the trash, that means I brought the gift for the wrong reason. I know you might go to some very, you know, um, enlightened view that if you brought it just out of kindness, you wouldn't care what they did. But of course, you might have a reaction to how they respond to your gift. So... It could be that if it's only about their response, then yes, then maybe I did it for the wrong reasons. But there could be a matter of degree there where, yes, I thought it was the right thing to do, but I still had a reaction. So you bring it, the opposite is also true. You bring a gift for your friend and they're like, oh, this is amazing. Thank you so much. I wanted this and, you know, I'm going to use this and it feels so good. And if that made you feel good, we wouldn't say, oh, see, that means you did it for the wrong reason because it's because of how good they felt you did it. No, they could both be true that you thought it was the right thing to bring the gift but the reaction made you feel good. That was nice. And it could, or that was kind. No, that was nice. It felt good. You enjoyed that feeling and that might even inform the next ways you give gifts or show kindness too. So they're related in that way or you were hoping they would have a positive response, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's the only reason um, why you did it. So going back to kindness, when it's coming from that place of this is what I want to do, your compass is internal. I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do. Whereas when it's coming from nicest, the compass and the measurement or the index is external. Do people like what I said? If they did, then I'm going to keep doing it. If they don't, then I'll change it to what feels nice to them. Because nice isn't um, some kind of standard thing that's coming from us. Nice is we're gauging what the other person wants and giving that to them. And that's, again, making it less genuine. This doesn't mean that with everyone we interact with, we're going to do the exact same thing because we're being, uh, you know, that means it's my genuine self. Your genuine self, of course, will adapt to the, the situation. We sometimes talk about the genuine self like it's a, a static, frozen thing. No, your genuine and authentic self means being in each moment as your authentic self, not I am someone that does X, so in every situation I do X, but I will respond in this situation as feels um, right to me. So you might do different things in different situations. I don't want to give that impression that kindness um, has to be that way or that if you're if you're changing what you're doing, it can't be kind. No, sometimes you're aware, okay, this person likes this, so I'm going to show love or kindness to this person. Or you talking to a child, you might show a certain type of kindness and you wouldn't to an adult because you know that they might experience things differently. So to conclude, because I want to be nice and end the show on time, um, Nice is a four-letter word that we want to be aware of, that although it sounds good, sounds nice, it's not so nice. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Razale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Lakwi, Zan Zendegi Azati. Mm-hmm.